Welcome to Musonomics. I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt. In September, the IFPI, the International Organization for the Recorded Music Industry, released their annual report on global music listening, which looks at the ways in which music consumers aged 16 to 64 engage with recorded music across 21 countries. On the top line, the news is good. Music listening is up a bit from 2018, with respondents typically spending 18 hours a week listening to music. This breaks down to 2.6 hours, or the equivalent of listening to 52 three-minute songs daily. Most people, 54%, describe themselves as loving or being fanatical about music. And among 16 to 24-year-olds, this rises to 63%. Engagement with audio streaming is strong, with 64% of all respondents accessing a music streaming service in the past month, up by about 7% over 2018. However, there is some bad news. Copyright infringement remains a challenge. 27% of those surveyed used unlicensed methods to listen to or obtain music in the past month while 23% used illegal stream-ripping services, the leading form of music piracy. But perhaps even more insidious is what the industry calls the value gap, the growing mismatch between the value that user upload services, such as YouTube, get from the music used on their services, and the revenue that is then returned to the music community, those who are creating and investing in music. The IFPI has said that the value gap is the biggest threat to the future sustainability of the music industry. In the report, 77% of all respondents used YouTube in the last month. The video share of on-demand streaming was nearly 50%, dwarfing paid or ad-supported audio services. I started my career around 2000, so pretty much the worst time to ever get into music. But, you know, it was really interesting because as I started becoming a better and more successful professional musician, playing in a lot of bands and groups with people who were older than me and had had a very different experience on that rise up. It gave me an interesting perspective because I got to see what somebody who started 10, 20 years before me could actually expect from um, remuneration. So people who were doing exactly the same thing I was doing 20 years before me had houses and you know could afford you know better insurance or, or certain things that was just not made available to me even though I was achieving sort of box by box ticking all of the same things that I had accomplished. And so that was actually the reason why I started speaking out about this and, and trying to investigate really what was wrong. That was Miranda Mulholland, who I met earlier this year when I went to Geneva, Switzerland, where I was invited to give a talk by the IFPI and Music Canada at WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, about the transformation of the music industry and how record companies create value in the modern world, as well as to touch on recent initiatives like the Music Modernization Act in the United States and the European Copyright Directive that has been approved now by the European Parliament. Miranda is a classically trained musician, she tours around the world, and is in high demand as a session musician and has performed on over, I don't know, dozens and dozens of albums as well as TV shows and film scores. Graham Henderson also joined us in Geneva. He's the president and CEO of Music Canada. I spoke with Graham and Miranda recently in New York. And so, Graham, let me start with you. When we talk about the failure of uh, government and law to keep up with technology, we're really talking about the value gap. We are talking about the value gap. 
happened. If you think back to the old days when uh, getting into a recording studio was an expensive proposition, you had to be signed to a label to do that. Otherwise, you were doing something at home on very dodgy equipment, and the sound reflected that. Not always, but often that was the case. And then suddenly we've moved into a world where it's possible not always desirable, but it's possible to record inexpensively, and that has opened up a whole world for the modern-day performer. But uh, what looked like a golden age, where suddenly the means of production now in the hands of the people, the people are going to talk to the people, connect with the people, make money from the people. Unfortunately, our laws didn't think forward to an environment where the product of this creative process was in any way democratized. It was in, it was in effect co-opted by a group of people, platforms who sort of sequester all of the revenue that's derived from the production of music and are not paying performers and or labels appropriately. Who are we talking about? Google, um, any of the uh, any of the YouTube. Um, any of these major services. Now, they're not all the same. Certainly, Apple Music and Spotify are, are actually in our business and uh, are interested in uh, coming to uh, reasonable commercial contractual terms with us. But then, uh, you know, we have the, the elephant in the room, which is how YouTube is remunerating everybody. At kind of the beginning of music on the internet mm-hmm. in the United States, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1998 or so, thought a little bit about this, but maybe not all the way through in that act, which happened during a time when we were still using dial-up modems mm-hmm. you know, to That's get right. online, allowed for companies who were making music available in a certain way online were going to qualify for safe harbor treatment. What happened as a result? Well, I think safe harbor legislation was originally designed to reflect into the digital environment rules that had existed in an analog environment for a very long time. In fact, I think those rules were based on early early legislation designed to protect telephone companies from liability for things that were being said uh, over, over their network. Over their network. Right. And, and they're saying, look, I don't know what Larry is doing talking to Miranda. They're planning a bank heist. I'm not responsible for that because I don't know what's going on. I'm not monitoring what they do. And I think there might have been a quaint notion in the 1990s that the internet might look like that. And of course, we laugh today at the idea that internet companies don't know what's going on because now day after day, we learn that they seem to know almost everything that's going on. And I think in the case of the music platforms, you know, it it began with people saying, look, people are going to upload music. I can't be liable for it if it's being done illegally because, again, I don't know what's happening going through my dumb pipes. And uh, then, of course, we now confront uh, information, which didn't surprise anybody in the music industry, by the way, from, you know, the top folk at YouTube saying that 83% of all music that's consumed or listened to on Google is recommended. Uh, And they're very proud of the fact that they know what it is that Miranda wants to listen to, and they're going to deliver that sort of music to her as a recommendation. So they know what's happening. It's being commercialized. It was thought of originally when the safe harbor was created that this was going to protect commercial activity. It's ended up protecting commercial activity. And that's not what the, that wasn't the idea. Why is this bad for artists? It's bad for artists because if you are protected by a set of rules, 
which effectively shields you from the need to enter into a commercial arrangement on commercial terms that are favorable to both parties, where I can say to YouTube, well, no, you're just not going to use my music. I mean, that's the great thing about exclusive rights. That's why exclusive rights for authors and actors and playwrights, poets, anybody who's creating a copyright, the beauty of it is you get to say no. No, you can't use my music. You can't use my book without my permission. And therefore, you can set a price. Now, obviously, in a give and take marketplace, people are going to come to an agreement. If they don't, it won't get used. When you get into an arrangement with somebody like YouTube where they have this protection, I, I don't get to say no. I can't say you cannot have my music on YouTube. And they can say, well, that's fine. You can take it down, but I don't have any responsibility. You can take your versions of this down, but I don't have any responsibility if it pops up again. And so, no, I don't agree to your terms. And so you end up with a commercially compromised agreement. And as a result, the money that flows from one of the richest corporations in the history of the world, Google, Google flows to performers and labels and everybody else at rates far, far below the market rate. How far below? And, and what do you mean by the market rate? Well, we, we can sort of guess what the market might look like by looking at the agreements that we've entered into with Spotify. We could look at that. We could look at Apple Music and say, well, let's compare. And it's about 5%. In other words, that YouTube is monetizing music at a rate that is about 5% of the rate that Spotify and Apple that Music- They're paying, other... right. And we have an economist who has estimated that the cost to the music community in Canada alone, which is one-tenth size of America, but that the cost to copyright owners in Canada is half a billion dollars. And so listeners might say- Over what period of time? A year? A, a year. And so listeners might say, well, what, what does that actually mean? And well, our existing, the existing value of the music market in Canada is half a billion dollars. So simply getting market rates from YouTube would double the size of the music market in Canada. And it might have another effect, Larry, and as, you know, musonomics, you're, you're interested in how economics interacts with us. It would have another effect because how do we know that the Spotify rates and the Apple Music rates are the right rates? Yes, they're commercially negotiated. Yes, we have exclusive rights. Yes, we get to say no. But those folks have to compete against somebody the largest player in the market, YouTube, who's giving music away for free. And that's going to have the effect of depressing the price for the price that they can charge to the consumer. And that's going to have a knock-on effect in terms of the revenue that is derived by labels and performers from the commercial use of their music. So this is like the lead domino in a rather grim game of dominoes, where if we simply went back to basics, took away safe harbors that were ill-conceived, maybe for good purposes, I'm not sure, but were ill-conceived. And after 20 years, we can see the effect that it's having on the community. So let's just go back, do the right thing, right? Remember, they, they began by saying, you know, don't be evil or whatever it is. How about they have a new motto, which is just, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to be better. And we're going to put ourselves on an economic footing that is similar to everybody else. Miranda, what 
is the effect on music creators, or at least on you as a music creator? Well, I mean, as Graham said, this is taking away any kind of leverage that we possibly could have if we wanted to be remunerated in a more fair fashion. And there's a byproduct that happens that was unintentional, I believe, which is that instead of music being the product, we are the window dressing for all these other companies to sell their product. Spotify offers a great platform where you can very conveniently stream, you can pick moods. Their product that they're selling is Spotify. It's not music. It's not my music. And same with YouTube. They have a platform where they want to get eyeballs on uh, an ad so they can make money. And so music, again, is a set dressing rather than actually the product. How has the job of being a working musician then changed in the digital age? And by that, I mean, you know, we've heard, you know, many times that in the transformation of not just the music industry, but the content industries in general, that we have traded analog dollars for digital dimes or, or pennies. But in terms of the day-to-day work that you do, how has that changed? It's changed a great deal. For me, it has just really meant that there have just been, since 2000, a proliferation of middlemen or middlewomen, where I've had to then take on so many other hats. So not I couldn't just be a musician. I had to also start a label. I started a music festival, same sort of thing. I want to connect other people. I want to amplify their message by being bigger than the sum of our parts. So I had to do those things. But in the meantime, update all of my gigs on all my websites, my Facebook, my Instagram, keep people engaged, give them just enough, but not too much. Make my life look interesting, but not give everything away. You know, there's such there's such an amount of not creating that I have to do day to day and that my colleagues have to do day to day. And to be honest, I'd really prefer to just be writing music and performing music and doing my main job, which is questioning and expressing. And at the same time, artists are effectively subsidizing the technology giants. I mean, to what degree is that happening? Well, with these exceptions, whenever there's an exception, I spoke at Midem, which is a music conference in, in Cannes, and I was on a panel, and the um, the moderator of the panel kept talking about these quirky exceptions in copyright law. And I had to remind the panel that every time anybody mentions an exception, it actually is just somebody not willing to pay fairly for what they are using and commercializing. But as time goes on, we keep running into people who say, well... I want to use it, and I want to use it without paying her. And I've got all these reasons why I might want to use it without paying. And so, for example, the tech companies, Silicon Valley companies, when back to YouTube, when the safe harbors were created, they're saying, I'd have to pay these people market rates, and if I do that, I won't be able to get my business off the ground. And I think we all agree that this technology is so important that we need to create this exception to allow me to flourish. And by the way, you know, yes, I recognize that this means performers won't be properly paid, but you know what? It's going to be okay. We are going, this technology is going to introduce methods for performers to interact with their fans in a way that's never been imagined, uh, and they're going to be okay. There's going to be, and the term that kept getting used was a golden age. And so we now, 20 years on, recognize that there is no golden age and that, in fact, performers have been impoverished by this exception. What it means is Miranda and or record companies of all sizes are actually subsidizing big tech, 
subsidizing broadcasters. Everyone who gets an exception is being subsidized because that's money that should otherwise have ended up in her pocket or mine. Net result being a hollowing out of the musical middle class? Oh, across the board. And I just, the one other thing, Larry, I just wanted to reflect on that Miranda brought up, and and this was the question of like, who's the brand here, right? And so you have these platforms that see themselves as the brand, and it reminded me of an exchange that I had with Blake Morgan, who I know you're familiar with, a good friend of Miranda's and mine as well. And he was, I forget which platform he was engaged in a discussion with, but they kept talking about their platform, say Spotify or whatever it might have been, as the brand, and referring to him, I believe, as a, a supplier. A- and then you had these users out there who used the supplies that the brand provided. And Blake, just suddenly it all came together for him. And he said, well, this is totally wrong. This whole paradigm is wrong. I'm not a supplier. I'm the brand. Me, Blake Morgan, musician, that's the brand. Mm-hmm. And those people you call users, they're my fans. And you? You're the user. The whole thing shifts. And when you start to think about it that way, yeah, I'm the brand. Those are my fans. And then you're sort of in the middle. Start paying for this properly. Mm -hmm. You're a user. It's interesting how many, you know, emails, because I have a great management company and I'm so I'm lucky. I mean, I even feel like I'm so fortunate to start in 2000. I, I, you know, I I worry about the younger creators who are who are starting now or or, um, a little a little earlier. But, you know, we get these uh, emails from from our distribution company and every platform and every platform has a different way that they want you to interact with your fans to tell them to use their platform. So, you know, if we actually succumb to this every day would be. If you're an Apple listener, we've mastered this for Apple. iTunes, this is special for you. And then the next day is trying to get someone from make a playlist on Spotify and add us and try to. So every platform has their own created way of trying to use us to be their advertising for free. So I'm wondering about what has changed in the last few years since you, Miranda, and other artists like Blake and many others, as well as national industry organizations like Music Canada and the RIAA and the IFPI, have been speaking out publicly about the level of pain that has been inflicted on the creative class in the internet era. How are things changing? Well, I can sort of speak personally to this and sort of gauge the change by the testimony that I've delivered over the years to Canadian government in asking for protections for copyright owners. And, you know, we went through a decade where we were derisively received It was like, you're a dinosaur, you're going out of business, you have no role in this marketplace, performers are going to interact directly, just get out of the way. This is the end of the middlemen, all middlemen, managers, labels, everybody, there's going to be artists and fans. And uh, we, we were treated derisively. And as time went on, you know, there was a little bit of a shift. There was, you know, what was missing, by the way, Larry, and I think you you and I have talked about this too, Miranda, skepticism. We talk a lot, uh, Miranda and I, about how in, in this world, I'm a little bit of a tangent, but the, the missing element in the late 90s and the first part of the 2000s was skepticism. Everybody was accepting the claims being made by the technology companies without any skepticism. And everything was, it was almost like a religion, just hey, take it on faith. 
There's going to be a golden age. You're going to make more money and all that kind of stuff. But as time went on, you know, I remember a testimony. It was the, the new dogma. The new, it is a new dogma. And certainly a lot of governments just took it on faith. We don't have to do anything to protect these people because they're going to be okay because Google says so. But what I will say is in the last three or four years, as the economic evidence has piled up and as artist advocates like Miranda have started to speak out, Suddenly, there is this awareness that, uh-oh, no golden age. We maybe need to do something, but what? Wouldn't you say, Miranda? Oh, yeah. And I think we have another kind of secret weapon, which is the fact that we're now really it's dawning on us as a public that free isn't free. It means you're giving away so much of your info, your privacy. You're the product. Um, you're the product. And I think it, it's interesting that you and I met in Geneva, Larry, because it's 200 years that Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. She started that book in Geneva. And that is the question that always needs to be asked in these matters, which is, just because I can, should I? Which did not get asked, you know, early days, Silicon Valley. And I think we have a secret weapon here where we are running right alongside people actually hearing that remuneration is not what you maybe imagine it. And I think that music, people love musicians. They want the artists that they love to be paid. They really do. I mean, I think that myth of, well, I don't, I can steal this music because it's Britney Spears, you know, back in the day, and she doesn't care because she's billionaire. She's fine. But actually what happened was, of course, the trickle down, which meant that artists' labels couldn't invest in young artists because they didn't have that kind of income. I wonder what is it then that a music creator, an artist, or a fan can do who wants to do the right thing? Well, I have a pamphlet, Larry, <laughs> that's uh, on my website, randomaholand.ca, and I've got an advocacy page. So I have given, you know, some suggestions as to things that people can do, and, and this goes across the industry. So industry, artists, consumers, and government. There are certain things that you can do, and in supporting artists and listening to them obviously is number one, but there are, um, you know, subscribing to a music service. So whether you listen to Spotify, Apple, whichever one you prefer, subscribe because pay. artists pay. Yeah, pay. do the pay model. Or both. Pay for both. Pay, pay for, for both. both. Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, I do. Um, mm-hmm. And and that that gives, you know, a tiny bump per stream for the artists. But it also is showing that you're willing to do that to the company and that you care about remunerating artists. Don't use YouTube as your number one go-to. That is uh, go see a lot of, go see live music. And there's nothing in our day and age now with our, everyone stuck to their phones and everybody's in their computer. There's really nothing like being in a room with a bunch of people all watching something and the magic ephemera that happens between the stage and an audience and that live experience. There's nothing like it. And I think the more and more we get in our digital worlds, the more and more important those experiences together will be. And I think they, you know, I guess philosophically it's important, but also, you know, on your health, there's many health benefits to doing these things as well. So going out and seeing live shows, buy CDs from artists, buy them directly if you can. Thank you to our featured guests, Graham Henderson and Miranda Mulholland. The Musonomics podcast is produced by Musonomics LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. Production assistance this episode from Nakul Sharma and Laurie Jacobson at Jaybird Communications. If you like what you heard on this episode of Musonomics, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute, and it's so important in helping new listeners find our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Musonomics. And if you have any questions or suggestions, 
You can find our contact information at musonomics.com. From the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>